So, welcome back again to the second part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley. Following on from last week's reflections, it's a delight for me to welcome back into Come and See Studio Father Frank Duick again, who's going to continue his reflections on the Mass. Good morning again, Father Frank. Morning, John. Okay, last week we went through right the way up, I believe, to the Liturgy of the Word. So, maybe... Father, as I remember you saying at one point that Christ is present in different ways when the Eucharist is celebrated. Can you expand a little bit on that, please, Russ? Yes, John, I think that's worth spending a few minutes on. Theologians and liturgists speak of Christ being present in four different ways when the Mass is celebrated. First, the theologians point out he is present in the gathered community of God's people, the congregation. People will remember the words of Christ in the Gospel, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. Secondly, Christ is present in the person of the ordained priest who leads the congregation in the prayers of the Mass and who helps people understand the words and actions of the liturgy. When the priest does that, he acts in the person of Christ and on behalf of the congregation. Thirdly, Christ is present, as we reminded listeners last week, in the Word of God. As we pointed out last week, each time the Word of God is proclaimed from Scripture, Christ is present in that Word. This can be a difficult concept to grasp, but it is very important that we be aware of that special presence of God in the living word of Scripture. The fourth and special and probably best known presence of Christ is in what we call the Eucharistic species, the body and blood of Christ. This is often described as the real presence, capital R, capital P, the real presence of Christ. This does not mean that the other three presences I have mentioned are not real. They are. But the emphasis on real presence regarding the Eucharistic species is to counteract the belief by some that the Eucharistic species are only a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. We will come back to deal with this again, John, when we talk about the consecration of the Mass. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see your face Open my eyes, Lord Help me to see Open my ears, Lord Help me to hear your voice Open my ears, Lord, help me to hear. Open my heart, Lord, help me to love like you. Open my heart, Lord. Help me to love. 
So, Father Frank, can you speak a little bit about the significance of the creed in the Mass? Yes, John. Um, first of all, there are two versions of the creed uh, that can be used at Mass. There is the Apostles' Creed, which is the one most of us would have learned and indeed probably know by heart. This creed has been traditionally used as the beginning of the rest, at the beginning of the recitation of the Rosary. Uh, The other creed that is used frequently in the Mass is what is entitled the Nicene Creed. Uh, I should point out, John, that the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. What we have in the creed is a gathering together of the core dogmas of the Church. The Nicene Creed is the more substantial of the two, And this Nicene Creed got its name from the Council of Nicaea, which was the first ecumenical council held in the church. It took place in the year 325, a long time ago, John. This creed was further developed at the Council of Constantinople in 381. You will note that in the course of professing our faith in the creed, we use the phrase, I believe four times, at the beginning of each of the four sections. In the first section, the focus of our belief is God the Father, the Father Almighty, we say, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things, creator of all things, visible and invisible. The second section focuses on Jesus Christ, his Son, and on his relationship with the Father. It is in that section that the word consubstantial turns up uh, to describe Jesus' relationship with the Father. There was a lot of ill-informed discussion, John, about this word when the new translation of the Mass was introduced five or six years ago. And the suggestion was being, you'll remember, John, being put forward that that time, that a simpler, more familiar word should have been used instead of this big, strange word, consubstantial. But as I said, this talk was ill-informed because there was no simpler word that could catch the reality that was being described. This word, consubstantial, describes a unique reality and doesn't describe any other reality. The third section uh, focuses on the Holy Spirit. And the final section uh, introduced by the phrase, I believe, is professing our belief in the church founded by Christ. We say, and I quote, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Some of our listeners will remember learning off what were called the four marks of the Catholic Church, one holy, Catholic and apostolic. And we conclude the creed there by saying we look forward to the resurrection.
So, Father Frank, up to now in these reflections, we've been dealing with the first part of the Mass, the liturgy of the Word. Can you lead us on now from, from there, please? Yes, John, having covered the liturgy of the Word, we now come to the second major part of the Mass, the liturgy of the Eucharist. Something to note here, to mark the movement on to the liturgy of the Eucharist, a practical thing, is that the priest moves from the ambo to the altar. Up to this point, the altar has not been used in the Mass. This second part of the Mass begins with what we call the offertory or the preparation of the gifts. Up to this point, there is only the missal on the altar. In fact, strictly speaking, the liturgists remind us that the missal should not be put on the altar until this moment. Then when the priest moves to the altar, either the altar servers or members of the congregation bring the bread and wine to the altar. And the prayer said during this part of the Mass point in three directions. People will be aware that the prayers said are as follows. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Through your goodness we have received the bread or the wine we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life or will become our spiritual drink. So you have emphasis there on three things. First, God the Creator's goodness. Secondly, the human labour by which the wheat and grapes is transformed for human benefit. And thirdly, the final destiny of the gifts themselves when they become the bread of life and our spiritual drink. Our offering, as it puts it, my sacrifice endures, as the priest says to the congregation. Gifts of bread and wine, gifts we So the next part of the Mass, Father Frank, is the Eucharistic prayer. Can you talk a little about that to us? Well, John, I'd want to be a a professional dogmatic theologian uh, to take you into the depths and and the history of this part of the Mass. And I'm not a professional teacher of theology, so I'll try and make a a few simple points on it. Before you do that, before you do that, may I interrupt you there for a second, Father Frank? Uh, I'm going to ask you to clarify, how many Eucharistic prayers are there? That's a good point, John. We need to clarify here uh, how many there are. First of all, there are the four basic Eucharistic prayers that people will be most familiar with, called simply Eucharistic Prayer 1, 2, 3 and 4. Then there are other Eucharistic prayers to be used on specific occasions. Perhaps they're not used often enough. And these would have a particular theme 
running through them. As you said, uh, Father, Father Frank, the Eucharistic prayers take us very deep into theology. But can you give us a few insights into them? Yes, John, I would like to make a few points that I hope will make the Eucharistic prayers a bit more accessible to people. At the heart of all Eucharistic prayers, you have the consecration. This is the most sacred moment in the Mass when our gifts of bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Catholic theology is very clear, John, on what it calls the real presence, as we mentioned before, stressing that we are not talking about the Eucharistic species of bread and wine being symbols of the body and blood of Christ, but a real presence of Christ's body and blood. Jesus didn't say, this is a symbol of my body. No, he said, this is my body. The word theology uses for this transformation that takes place at the consecration is transubstantiation, a unique word not used to describe any other reality. This transubstantiation is the very heart of the Eucharistic ministry. In simple language, what we have here is Jesus gifting himself to us. Many people, John, I believe, have walked away from the Mass because they say they cannot understand it. But, John, none of us can understand the Eucharist. It is something we accept by faith. Faith based on the clear teaching of Jesus. We are dealing here with mystery. Further, the Eucharist is it's a reenactment of the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that right? That's right, John. Jesus, for the first time at the Last Supper, took bread and blessed it, took wine and blessed it. And then he said, this is my body, this is my blood, which will be given up for you. And all of this was in anticipation of what was to happen uh, in the following days, the death and resurrection of Jesus. On Good Friday, his body and blood will be offered up on the cross. And that happens each time we celebrate Mass. The Mass makes it possible for us to connect evermore with what we call the Paschal Mystery, the Passion, Death and Resurrection of Jesus, the most momentous event this world has ever known. Father, doesn't what you're saying there really point to how important the the Mass and the Eucharist is? It certainly does, John. Uh, It is such a pity that so many people have walked away from it. If they only realised the treasure they are leaving behind them. There is a line in the documents of the Second Vatican Council which says, and I quote, 
the Eucharist contains the entire spiritual wealth of the Church. End of quote. The Eucharist is at the heart of what we are about as Catholics, because in it, we are, as I've said, we are, as I've said, drawn into the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I cannot stress that enough, John. And all of that is reflected in each of the Eucharistic prayers. Before we move on from the Eucharistic prayer, is there anything else you want to say about that part of the Mass? There's so much you can say about it, John. I suppose to mention that in every Eucharistic prayer there is a commemoration of the living and of the dead. Indeed, if we listen carefully, John, to the Eucharistic prayer, we notice that we pray for everyone and for all God's plan. To conclude here, John, just a little word on the Amen response that the congregation makes at the end of the Eucharistic prayer when the priest says, through him, with him, and in him, and that prayer and so forth. That Amen is known as the great Amen. You see, only the priest says the words of the Eucharistic prayer aloud. And I think it was St. Augustine that referred to that Amen, the great Amen, as the people's signature to the Eucharistic prayer. There is the danger that the Amen response is so short that some people don't bother saying it. This is a pity because Amen means, yes, I agree, I believe. A very important response. Next, uh, we come to the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Can you give? A, can you can you comment on that, please, Father? Yes, John. This, of course, is the prayer that Jesus Himself taught us, and again, it is full of meaning. 
but just one or two comments on its use in the context of the Mass. The Lord's Prayer is very much a community prayer, prayed to our Heavenly Father by us, his children. It's worth noting that even when we pray it privately, on our own, we still say our, we don't say my Father. We also say give us this day. Uh, You or I don't say give me this day. So it is a prayer we always pray, conscious of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So you can see how well it fits into the Mass where we are gathered with the members of our local Christian community. So then we come to the sign of of peace. Any comment on that, Father? As I said, uh, John, at Mass, we are a gathering of God's people who are called to love one another and thus to create peaceful communities. And we started the Mass calling on the Lord to forgive us for ways in which we have failed to love one another, failed to live in communion with one another. So here at the sign of peace, we wish one another uh, the peace that Jesus offers us. You will remember John, Jesus saying in St. John's Gospel, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. A peace the world cannot give, that is my gift to you. End of quote. And now we're coming to the reception of Holy Communion. Yes, John, here we find Jesus giving himself to us, body of Christ, and we reply, Amen. In other words, I agree, I believe that it is the body of Christ. So that Amen is meant to be a profound act of faith in Christ's real presence. Again, that brief but very important response. Amen. So, Father, we're very near to the end of Mass now. Have you a final comment? Yes. uh, The Mass ends with what we call the post-communion prayer, followed by the priest giving a final blessing to the congregation. And the very final words spoken by the priest are, Go in peace, glorifying the Lord with your life, Or, in another translation, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I actually prefer that latter translation, to love and serve the Lord. Because I see, John, I see that as our task for the week ahead. To love and serve the Lord. And by our prayer and above all, by the way we live our lives. And let us note, John, that the first thing we do when we gather from us, is we call to mind our sins. That is, we call to mind ways in which we have failed to love and serve the Lord. 
Another way I have heard this put, and I quote, In the Eucharist, we break the bread of life, the body of Christ. And our task going out from the Eucharist is to break the bread of our lives in love and service of the Lord through love and service of one another. Thanks, Father Frank, for, for sharing those reflections with us. Just one little observation, maybe just as we finish up, I'd have myself after listening to your reflections. He said that we as lay people are not just onlookers watching the priests saying Mass. We're participants. Oh, certainly, certainly participants, uh, John. And uh, perhaps the sense of being there listening to Father doing the Mass. Maybe that's a, a relic from the time we had the Latin Mass when people didn't understand. You know, those of us of a certain age will remember when Mass was in Latin. So maybe that cast people into the role of kind of uh, passive, maybe, listeners, you know, which would certainly not be an accurate description of, of, of what they are. No. Now, it must be said, John, that while we do stress, you know, very strongly that the, the people are participants, they're not uh, passive listeners. Uh, we must stress the profound connection between priesthood and Eucharist. We cannot stress that enough because if we don't get that connection, a lot collapses. There is a profound connection between the, the, pre, the, the, the ordained priest and uh, Eucharist. And we must never lose sight of that. And that's why, you know... The, it's such a worry for people at the moment, you know, not the, the possibility of not having priests to celebrate the Eucharist, which is so, so central to our lives. But having said that, um, no, the congregation are certainly not uh, passive onlookers, so to speak. They're, they're all there, the gathered people of God, the baptized people of God, all responding to God's call. You know the way I see Mass, John? Um, we're called in and we're sent out yeah. rather than say I go to Mass and I go home after Mass mm-hmm. I am called in my, my decision to go to Mass is a response to the invitation of Christ do this in memory of me and when I go out I don't just go out I am sent out sent out to do what? Mm-hmm. to love and serve the Lord so Father thanks again uh, for giving us that, 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 that final reflection that final thoughts to take away with us couldn't help but um, but think as you were speaking there. It might be an opportune time for you to share with us um, a vocation prayer, please. Could you share that with us, please? Yes, yeah, certainly, John. I would love to. Thank you. Something we should be all praying for vocations all the time. I sometimes wonder, I have no way of knowing, of course, but I sometimes wonder, you know, 
how often do people pray for vocations? People should be praying every day for vocations. Almighty God, you have called us through baptism to discipleship with your Son, Jesus Christ, and you have sent us to bring the good news of salvation to all peoples. We pray that those whom God is calling from our community to serve him in priesthood and religious life may respond with generosity and faith and that they may receive support, encouragement and spiritual nourishment for the seed of their vocation in their families and in our wider parish community. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father Frank, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome, John. Jesus, our Redeemer.